Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and I've been promising you guys interviews for too long. And uh, while I do have one, a real new interview set up for next week, I decided to go back and look through some of my favorite interviews of all time and uh, bring you back a gem that's still applicable today. And uh, the one I chose was from Troy Hunt. He is the owner of a website called HaveIBeenPwned.com. And as you'll find out in the interview, pwned means is like another word for owned or kind of hacked or dominated. And the purpose of his website is basically to collect information about data breaches, password data breaches in particular, uh, that have happened so that you can go and enter your email address on his website to find out if that email address has been associated with the data breach. And I believe you can even register with the site so that if that uh, email address comes up again in the future, or maybe it's not there now, but it comes up in the future, you will be notified. It's really a fantastic service and quite the labor of love. And the service has actually been integrated into several other services. But the point of the interview really is not just that. It's really about why these data breaches happen, why they can be so bad for people, how they happen, how he comes across all this data, and of course, what you can do about it. So still, unfortunately, today, just as necessary as it was when we did this interview a little over a year ago. So again, I do have a fresh interview coming up. It should be next week, fingers crossed. But until then, there's not been a whole lot of news, a lot of, a lot of new security news. So uh, I thought I'd uh, bring back an oldie but a goodie. So without further ado, let's go back and re-listen to my interview with Troy Hunt. All right, Troy Hunt is a Microsoft Regional Director and a Most Valuable Professional Awardee for Developer Security. He's a blogger, international speaker, and author of several online courses, and the run uh, person who runs Have I Been Pwned. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, we just talked about uh, Have I Been Pwned recently, and actually I've mentioned it on the show several times, so I'm really glad to have you on the show to explain what this is all about and uh, how people can best use your service. And I've got plenty of other questions. So but let's start with the main <laughs> one. Uh, tell us about your website. You know, Have I Been Pwned? How did that come to be? And then, of course, probably for this audience's sake, what is it, what is Pwned? Yeah, hey, let's start with the last bit first uh, because that's that's the fun one. So, so pwned is sort of a little bit of a colloquialism, which is a misspelling of owned. And it, look, I guess it's been used a lot in things like video games where someone frags the other person and, ha-ha, I owned you sort of thing. So it, it tends to be used a little bit when some kind of misfortune befalls <laughs> a victim. Uh, and a, a bit of misfortune that unfortunately befalls many of us these days is we end up in a data breach. So Have I Been Pwned is a publicly searchable list of data breaches. And if you've appeared in one of these data breaches, you can go to Have I Been Pwned, plug in your email address, and it says, hey, uh, let, let's say like me, you have been in the Dropbox data breach, in the LinkedIn data breach. Uh, and it helps people understand where they've been exposed on the internet. And how did, how did you come to make this site? Like, I know that you, you know, obviously you said you were affected yourself. Maybe that's what drove you to do this. But what what brought you to create this site? Well, the, the catalyst for it was in late 2013. I think it was about October 2013, Adobe had a data breach. Uh, and I was in the Adobe data breach. Actually, I was in there twice. My personal email address and my work email mm. address. Uh, and that was a pretty large incident. And there were a bunch of other incidents around the time that were a lot smaller. And I think from memory, Adobe was saying like 150 million records, and there are a few others that are sort of around a million or something. And I'd been doing a bunch of analysis on on breaches to, to try and learn a bit more about people's behaviors when it comes to things like how they create accounts. Uh, so for example, turns out a lot of people use the same password every day. 
and yes. and we can we can demonstrate this emphatically when we have the data from multiple different systems, and the same person appears in each one. Mm. Uh, Adobe was interesting too because they they actually encrypted passwords, but then they had password hints which weren't encrypted. <laughs> so you look at the password hint, and it's like my dog's name. Well. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of options there, you know, in the, in the yeah. realm of different possibilities. Uh, and by the way, I can go to your Facebook and figure out your dog's name really quickly. Anyway, yes. So it was really interesting to sort of see this data out there. And the, the, the sort of, I guess, the epiphany that I had at the time is it's like most people don't know where they've been exposed. So let's create a service to help them figure it out. All right. So how do you get this information? First of all, what is a data breach? Just let's, let's cover that. What is it? What does it mean to, for your data to be breached? And then how do you come across this, that information? So the, the strict definition is where there's been data exposed to unauthorized parties. Uh, so typically within Have I Been Pwned, data breaches are someone has found either a vulnerability in a system. So there's been some bad coding that's given them access to the database. Many times it's a misconfiguration as well. So there's a database out there and it doesn't have a password on it. Uh, even just this morning, I was looking at one where someone has published all of their data to a publicly facing website and it's just in a directory listing. So it's literally like, here is a list of all the data, go for it. It can also be cases where someone uh, accesses data and redistributes it in an unauthorized fashion. So we had a bit of news here a couple of days ago. Uh, where someone working for a major financial institution had just started copying data and had taken it home with them and was inevitably going to use it for nefarious purposes. So that's not necessarily a vulnerability in a system. That's just someone abusing their position of power. And this available and this data is taken by the hackers or whoever it's taken by, and it's put where and how do you get a hold of it? So it goes to a variety of different places, and it, it, it really sort of depends. In, in some cases, it's taken by hackers, and then it's kept very private. Uh, now, what do they do with it when it's private? Well, they could do anything from use that information to try and access people's accounts. So they might log into the account and gain access to anything from financial records to personal messaging. They might use that data on other accounts because people do tend to reuse their passwords. Mm -hmm. So they'll say, hey, you know, look, I've just got, you know, let's say it's your LinkedIn uh, email address and password. I'm now going to go and log into your eBay because you use the same password. And once they're in the eBay, maybe they'll go and purchase goods under this person's identity uh, and then ship those to a location where they can then convert them into cash. So there's certainly the, the sort of the, the private socialization of this data. One of the things that, that I never really understood the, the extent of before I started this project is how much data is just socialized and traded between individuals. And what I mean by that is that there are people sitting on literally thousands of different individual data breaches that just share them with their mates. It's like, hey, I've got, you know, let's say the Plex data breach. I was in the Plex data breach because I used the Plex media service and their forum had a data breach and someone will say, you know, I've got that. Would you like it? Uh, yeah, what can you give me? And they exchange it. A little bit like they might exchange baseball cards or, or, or something, but <laughs> unlike baseball cards, it's digital. So yeah. it, it, doesn't, it doesn't sort of, it, it's not a constant state of numbers. It replicates over and over and over again. And, it, and this is on like the dark web or are there, and if so, what, explain to me what the dark web is and, and <laughs> do they charge for this data? Do you have to pay for this data when you get it for your site? So the, the dark web, first of all, is, is something that's not quite as scary as it sounds. In fact, mm -hmm. I always have a lot of fun when, when people sort of say, oh, dear, I've heard about the dark web. Sounds very scary. <laughs> and I'll say, well, okay, let me show you what the dark web is. Now, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was with a friend of mine, and, and she said, look, I've never seen the dark web. I, you know, this sounds kind of scary and mysterious. Can you show me? And I said, all right, here's what the dark web is. You download the Tor browser bundle for free off the normal internet, 
Now you're on the dark web and it looks just <laughs> like the clear web. And the, and the only difference is your connection is routed through multiple hops and both the client and the server are anonymous. So without some form of decloaking, which, which is another story altogether, you're effectively anonymous as you're browsing the internet and the services which you're running behind that are anonymous as well. Now, we, we often sort of hear the dark web being referred to in the context of things like underground drug markets. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certainly a lot of drugs. Sites like the Silk Road were very infamous for that. And certainly digital goods are exchanged on these services too. You can go and buy data breaches. But equally, a huge amount of data is just sitting there on the clear web. And yeah, what I mean by that is that there are all sorts of everything from sort of forums to just collections of data in, in stashes and folders that are accessible via your normal browser. Uh, I've seen, particularly over the last couple of weeks, a huge amount of data being socialized via Twitter. You know, this hmm. is not the dark web. This is one of the world's biggest social media platforms. Click the link. Here's a billion, five billion, oh 12 billion records of people's email addresses and passwords. And to your question about paying for it, there are certainly people that sell this data. I've always taken the position that I think paying for this data, regardless of, of the potential illegalities of that, and I'm sure there are mm. some depending on your jurisdiction, is not the right thing to do because it incentivizes criminal activity. Uh, you know, sure. if, if I go and pay someone for a data breach and they go, well, hang on a moment, so if I come up with data, I can make money from it. Mm. Uh, and their moral compass is, is possibly aligned such that they'll go and try and find data in other places and it just makes the whole thing worse. Sure, yeah. So you know, like these other folks, you're, you're, you know the nooks and crannies to look in and you're kind of you know surfing around and uh, hanging around some of these same places that these are this data is trafficked and you just download what you can for free and that's what you make available on your site to, for searching for people to find out if they've been part of this data breach? Yeah, and, and, and to be clear, these days, and in fact, to be honest, not too long after I started the project, there are so many people that popped up and said, you know, look, we sort of support what you do. We think it's a good idea. Mm. Let us send you data. So it's very rare these oh, days nice. for me to actually go out looking for things, which which is very convenient for Oh, me. sure, yeah. People will pop up and send it to me, and it's, it's, it's pretty much a daily basis. Someone says, look, here's some data, and it might be anything from a 1,000 records through to you know, recently over a billion records. Uh, and they, these people just pop up out of the woodwork. Sometimes it's, it's the same suspects over and over again. Sometimes they're very uh, mainstream white hat security researchers that want to be publicly recognized. Mm. Other times it is probably people that were very, very close to illegally taking the data in the first place. You know, may, maybe it was the person. I try yeah. not to ask too many sure, questions, sure. if I'm honest. So uh, we, we hear about them all the time now. They're on, they're on the, the news and, and it, the they don't, qualify things too much in the, in the news as far as usually what you hear is like the number like the how bad it is depends on how many records there mm. were but in mm. your opinion which were what are the real worst data breaches and either historically or just uh qualitatively speaking what is you know what are the really worst data breaches and um that we've had you know i guess historic let's, let's start with historically what were some of the worst ones and why and you know does the news get it right when they report these things because it seems to me like they overhype a lot of things sometimes yes sometimes no there are certainly there are certainly media outlets out there and, and in particular some journalists out there that specialize in this area and and they are just fantastic at objectively reporting uh and they understand the technology and they understand the implications but by the same token, there's a lot of media out there, particularly once it becomes consumer-facing and it's journalists who you know, may not specialise in the area. Mm-hmm. The things do tend to get misrepresented. But, but in terms of, of what makes a data breach a severe thing and what are some of the notable ones in the past, 
I guess there's different ways of looking at it, and, and certainly the most obvious one is the number of records. Mm. But the number of records alone can be a pretty poor metric. So recently, uh, we're going back about a few weeks before recording, I, I loaded a, a data breach into Have I Been Pwned that had 733 million records, mm-hmm. which was the single largest one I'd ever, ever put in there. And this was a collection of email addresses and passwords from many different data breaches. Now, that was very noteworthy in terms of the volume because you know, three quarters of a billion is rather yeah. a large number. Yes. But it's only email addresses and passwords, which you know, on the one hand doesn't expose any, say, sensitive, personally identifiable information. Mm. On the other hand, this is stuff that will get you into other accounts. So that's quite serious. But then a lot of the data was old as well. And, and sort of the real world impact of that was notable, but not severe. Now, at the other end of the scale, if we take something like Ashley Madison back in 2015, so this is the website designed for people to have an affair. In fact, their strapline was, life is short, have an affair. Right, yeah. And they had a data breach with over 30 million people in it. Now, that's a lot smaller than 700, what was it, 733 uh, million. But it is people who were out there explicitly looking for affairs. So obviously, there's going to be social stigma and moral judgment and everything there. It had information that was personally sensitive, uh, things like sexual orientation, uh, fantasies, you, you know, like mm-hmm. things that are really, really deeply personal. Yeah. Uh, as well as things like payment card information as well. So it had payment records in there uh, from people that actually bought access to the service. And the impact of that was everything from many, many different people losing jobs because they were now outed. There are lots of services that popped up and made the data publicly searchable. Uh, in fact, that was the first time I went, look, there are some classes of data that just should not be publicly searchable. Yeah. Uh, but there are many services out there that did that. There were people like literally posting to their community bulletin boards oh, wow. in paper, like stuck to a court board. You know, here's a list of the people in our community that were on this site. Oh, wow. So, you know, some pretty serious shaming. Uh, and there were people that killed themselves. So in, in terms of impact, like that's about as severe as you can get. And I, yeah. I can't think of another incident that's come even close to that in terms of the real world impact on a, on a broad number of people. Yeah, very good point. Now, do we do we have any idea, do state actors get involved at this level? Or do we know if they're either buying and or selling this information at the, you know, uh, probably our government or China or Russia or whoever, (laughs) pick your boogie. All the usual suspects, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, look, I mean, what we do know, and particularly over the last probably two and a half years, as you guys approach the 2016 election, the the whole sort of premise of state hacking became a much more mainstream Mm -hmm. uh, headline. And uh, look, being very rational about it, it makes sense (laughs) when you think about it, because you think about the number of connected systems that we have online and think about the amount of critical infrastructure which is connected. And all of this runs on the internet. Like this is the sort of stuff that state actors definitely want to get access to. Now either they want to get access because they want to understand more about things like the way the way corporations are, are planning their products. We see a lot about corporate espionage lately. Mm. Uh, there certainly has been a lot of discussions between the US and China in particular about that. We also see a genuine interest in wanting to have control of critical infrastructure. And, and as a result, we see governments getting very cautious about things like using Chinese products in, say, 5G networks is one yeah. of the topics at the moment. Uh, so in many parts of, of the West, world, the likes of, of Huawei and ZTE, uh, are out as, uh, as contenders for critical infrastructure, which of course then makes it very, very hard because these are the guys that are actually producing some of the best hardware out there mm. at really cost-effective prices too. <laughs> so right, that, yeah, yeah. That, that becomes very difficult. Uh, and then of course the whole election hacking thing where we sort of went, well, it, it, it's kind of 
it, it's hacking, but not in the obnoxious, we have all your data or control of your systems. This is now trying to manipulate public perception in really, really subtle ways sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's sort of equal parts fascinating and scary. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, in today's age, data brokers are now a thing. Uh, there are, you know, I saw an estimate somewhere there's 2,500 or 4,000 of these just in the U.S. alone. Um, but do we know, are these are they, are these data brokers, companies, databases being hacked and stolen as well? And if so, how, how would we know? I mean, if, you know, if Target or Equifax, somewhere I'm a kind of a direct customer of gets hacked, mm, you know, they will mm. often notify me. These data brokers, sir, as heck, are going to tell me, you know, you know, I had a whole bunch of stuff on you. And by the way, it just got hacked. Well, the, the brokers is a really interesting one because there's a whole spectrum of legitimacy there. Uh, and and f <clears throat> frankly, if I'm honest, I, I think the whole spectrum is a little bit shady in, in mm. the, the same sort of common ways insofar as they have a huge amount of our data without us necessarily knowing about it. And no, like burying it on page 50 of your terms and conditions is not us knowing about right, it. Right, right. <laughs> but, but, but hey, we did say we read them all and we agreed mm. to them before we signed right. up for that service. So we're seeing everything from on, on the most shady side of things, services which aggregate huge amounts of data and sell them with a pretty explicit intent of disadvantaging the people that are in there. So, for example, <laughs> uh, the, the data being used for account takeover attempts because you're sharing the username and password through to really mainstream stuff. I mean, we saw uh, Dun & Bradstreet uh, had a data breach a couple of years ago with a service called Net Prospects. Uh, and Net Prospects was just a whole bunch of data used for, if you look at the headlines on a lot of these sort of mainstream, quasi above board uh, services, it'll be like, optimize your revenue pipeline and enhance economies of scale. Like it'll just, it'll just be full of words from, you know, like marketing handbooks. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and what they're trying to do is create like really rich profiles of people that can be used for, for better targeting. And of course, the more personal information they have, the better other organizations can target you. you know, like if they understand what you like to eat for breakfast, they can target you in a way that they that they wouldn't be able to if they didn't know that information. And the, the, the thing that I really lament is just how many of these there are. I mean, I was in one the other day. My own personal address was in one from a company called Apollo. Uh, now, Apollo.io apparently had my data. I had no idea why they had my data. And when I really started probing and drilling down into it, there's another service I use. I use a service called New Relic. I use it as part of the yeah. monitoring for Have I Been Pwned. And New Relic used Apollo as part of the service that they delivered to me, and they gave my data to Apollo. And I probably agreed to it in the terms and conditions, but now suddenly it's like, who's, who are these Apollo guys, and why do they have my data? Along with the data of tens of millions of other people. So let's ask the fundamental question. Why are these breaches happening in the first place? Why is it that these that so many companies cannot seem to protect our data. Is it is it that hard to do or are they doing it wrong? Look, I think it's a little bit of, of both to, to different degrees. Um, you, you know, there are certainly cases where we see, uh, like I said earlier on, like coding flaws. So, for example, there are flaws like uh, SQL injection flaws. We, we've had around for more than a decade, uh, broadly considered the number one web application security risk uh, in the world. And we see it being exploited over and over and over again. We like we still have not fixed this problem. Uh, through to misconfigurations, like literally you have no password on your database and it's facing <laughs> the world. But for that sort of thing to happen, you normally have to have a series of events go wrong. I mean, you okay, you have to not put a password on your database. That's one thing. But secondly, databases like that really shouldn't be sitting there just facing the world. They should be firewalled off and you know, in a private network somewhere. 
So yeah, those sort of things continue to go wrong. But I guess the, the bit of sympathy that I have for these organizations as well is that we have so many moving parts in software now. There are so many different services and so many people responsible for managing them. It requires sort of a really mature organization in many ways to get these things right. And that doesn't necessarily mean a big organization with a lot of money because we see you know, Equifax, for example, <laughs> have a major data breach. And, and the Equifax data breach only happened because a whole series of different things went wrong and the planets aligned and the rest is history. So is another reason for this, though, and I keep coming back to this, and is that there are really no repercussions for screwing it up. I mean, look at Equifax. They had a huge, massive data breach of really awesome information for identity thieves. Nothing happened. And not only that, but I'm not their customer. I didn't choose Equifax. There's nothing I couldn't take my business elsewhere. Isn't that part of the problem is that there's 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 not incentivized to get it right? I think it depends on on how you look at it and you can kind of argue it both ways. You can certainly make that argument that that you know that there's just not enough disincentive and nothing really bad happened. On the other hand, the CEO lost his job. The CISO lost her job as well. Uh, some people, I believe, are going to jail for insider trading or certainly facing criminal charges. I mean, the insider trading thing's a little right. bit parallel. That, yes, that's parallel. But yeah, it's just a mess. But yeah, there are certainly severe ramifications for executives, but I suspect the court of public opinion would sort of say, oh, CEO lost their job, probably walked out with a hundred million bucks or whatever it is as well. Like you know, maybe that's not like sufficient punishment. So I, I could sort of understand that. Uh, it, it's interesting to sort of look at at the way regulations differ around the world as well. And mm-hmm. uh, Europe last year got some fairly severe regulations in their General Data Protection Regulation right. or, or GDPR, where an organisation now can be fined up to four percent of their gross annual worldwide turnover. Uh, and, and suddenly it's like, well, actually, that's a lot of money because right. previously the, the fines have often just been, they've just been ridiculous. And I'll, I'll give you a good example. There's a company in the UK called TalkTalk. Talk. Uh, they're a large telco. And they had a big data breach in 2015. Uh, and it was a massive news story. It turned out to be perpetrated li- literally by children. So there's a 17-year-old. <laughs> in fact, there's a photo of a 17-year-old walking out of court. You can't see his face because he's literally a child. Oh, so, you know, you, you get a child able to do this amount of damage. Uh, and their information commissioner's office over there leveled the largest ever fine handed out to a UK company at them which was £400,000. <laughs> now, this is a company with revenue of £1.8 a year, and you get a £400,000 fine. Uh, and to put that in context, if you earn $100,000 a year, this is like getting a $20 fine. You know, like it's right. lunch. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you get fined your lunch, are you going to do it again? Uh, well, it's not a lot of disincentive. But then the other metric there is Talk Talk says it costs them £42 million, so the, the incident in its entirety, mm. you know, everything from identity theft protection for people and, and the, the security companies had to come in and clean up the mess. I, I don't know if that includes sort of reputation damage and other losses and things like that. But certainly it's a lot more than just the regulatory cost itself. But I, I think we all feel that a you know, $20 fine for someone earning hundred grand a year is, is not really that – it doesn't really have teeth. Right, for sure. I think, thankfully, at least some of the GDPR, even though I'm, I don't know how likely it is we'll have something like that here in the U.S., or and I don't know, do you have anything similar to G- GDPR in Australia, either looming or oh, recently geez. passed? <laughs> <laughs> so, last year, we finally got our mandatory data breach disclosure laws, which is called the, the Notifiable Data Breach Scheme in Australia. And it's 
it's better than not having one, <laughs> but it's really, really weak. And there's sort of three things that just continue to, to stick out to me and many others in there. And one of them is is that it's it's only a notifiable data breach if we're talking about an organisation that has turnover of more than three million Australian dollars a year. Uh, now that is less than ten percent of Aussie businesses. It's also only a notifiable data breach if the organisation believes it's likely to cause serious harm to the subject matter. Uh, and there are a number of different tests for this, but none of those tests include things like you've lost usernames and passwords and people have reused them everywhere else. So, you know, you might be running like a cat forum or something like that, which is fine. <laughs> and, and you go, oh, usernames and passwords is not going to cause serious harm. Well, no, it, it is because that's the username and password for your bank account and for your eBay and everything else. Right. And then the, the, the third thing that's a bit wacky with this one is that whereas in the case of like GDPR, you've got 72 hours to report a breach to the local regulator, uh, Australia's gone, ah, oh, you know, like people, people are busy, they're down the beach, they've got things to do here, we'll give them a month. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I'd, I lament the fact that, that I can sort of be sitting there with my European mates and, and they get all of these protections under EU law and I don't get them under Aussie law. But, you know, look, we have something now. It's a starting point. Hopefully we'll get more alignment with, with uh, Europe in the future. Yeah, and I'm, you know, and I, some of that stuff is actually spilling out. Because of these are global companies and, and a lot of them are make, just making the decision, if I'm going to have to do this for Europe, I may as well do it everywhere. So in some cases, we're getting a little bit of rub off from that, a little bit of benefit from, from that. But, we, you know, I know that in the U.S. we have trouble with that, too, because the way the courts are kind of set up and the way these class action lawsuits are set up, you have to kind of be able to prove that you've been harmed. And a lot of times, by the time you've been harmed, it's too late. And then a lot of times, it's, there's no way to tell that the reason my identity, you know, was stolen was because of the Equifax, Equifax breach. Um, so that you know, yeah. being able to prove standing is something that, that, that defeats a lot of these class action lawsuits. And therefore, you know, yet another reason why there's no repercussions. See, I mean, this is another one of those sort of double-edged swords thing, and, and I often have lawyers get in touch with me uh, after a data breach, Yeah, sometimes literally within 24 hours of a data breach, uh, and say, you know, we're doing a class action lawsuit. And uh, like, I'm sorry, but if lawyers start contacting you within 24 hours, this is not like, hey, we've suddenly had like a rush of people really worried about their personal safety. It's it, As far as I'm concerned, it becomes a real money grab. Mm, sure. And, you know, like you make a good point in terms of demonstrating harm, but I'll, I'll give you a good example of, of where this just gets exploited. Uh, there was a, a data breach of a Hong Kong toy maker called VTEC. This was probably mm-hmm. four yep. years ago or something now. I remember that. And VTEC lost millions of, well, actually, let, let's not use the word lost. Someone broke in through a vulnerability in VTEC systems, which should never have been there, took out millions of records uh, about parents' contact information, also children's names, photos, birth dates, and references back to the parents with their physical address. So, like, like, like really, really bad stuff. Mm. So, one person took it out gave it to a very reputable journalist. That reputable journalist gave it to me to analyze, and there were three of us in the world that had this data. Uh, and in the wash-up of that, I end up having chats with everyone from VTech lawyers through to law enforcement, uh, all very, very positive chats too, mind you. And, and it ended up that we said, look, let, let's just try and delete every single trace of this we have. And I certainly did that on my side. They arrested someone in the UK, and and I'm sure the journalist did the right thing too. So now you've had this incident, which shouldn't have been there, but there is no data circulating around, and people are trying to mount class action lawsuits. Mm. And to your point about the damage, I'm 99 point something percent sure that there was no damage to anyone, 
so why are you mounting a lawsuit? Interesting. You know, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I want the regulator to throw right. the book at them over this because this was crazy, particularly when kids are involved. Yeah, yeah. But you can't be suing for damages when there are no damages. And, and as I understand it, I think those class action lawsuits actually failed, which is a good thing. But you can sort of see how it muddies the water as oh, well, yeah. where we've got people saying, you know, look, I want to sue for damages or by the way, I don't have any damages. <laughs> yeah, that's a great counterpoint. I'd never heard that story that from that angle anyway. That's that's really interesting. So is there a way for the average consumer, certainly the non-technical consumer, to compare the relative security of these services and companies that might want to give data to? So if I'm actually, if I'm wanting the, the invisible hand of the market to work and, I, and I'm the informed consumer, can I really... Is there really anything I can do to pick a company or not pick a company because I think they may or may not be less more likely to lose my data in a data breach? I mean, my point, I think, is that there is no way, but I'd like to hear your opinion. No. <laughs> There's no way. So, honestly, that's how simple the answer is. I, it, it's, it's funny, actually. So I often have people say to me, oh, you run this Have I Been Pwned site. Why should I trust you with my data? Mm-hmm. And I say, all right, first of all, it's an email address. The only way email addresses even work is you give them to other people. You know, mm-hmm. unless you do that, you can't mm-hmm. actually do anything with an email address. Also, when you go to Have I Been Pwned, you'll see how all of these big companies that you trusted with it have actually lost the data. You know, I mentioned LinkedIn and Dropbox and all these sorts of organizations. And the, the reality of it is, is that you, me as well for that matter, have absolutely no way of assessing how likely an organization is to lose your data when you give it to them. So, so you have to sort of take this defensive position of, of making the assumption that sooner or later, everyone's going to screw it up mm-hmm. somehow. Uh, so, so what does that mean in terms of your behavior? Well, uh, okay, with passwords, I use a password manager and I make them strong and unique and I don't reuse them and I use two-factor authentication. Uh, with the other data I provide people, I only give data that I absolutely positively need to, to give them. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to give you my birth date for some random forum because a birth date is a right. piece of identity verification information. Yep. Uh, I don't particularly want to give you my home address if I don't need to. Uh, and, and frankly, I, I even I even lament sort of handing over my passport when I walk into a hotel somewhere. It's like, yeah, why right. do you want my passport? Because, hey, Marriott and Star Wars yeah. just happened and yeah. they lost a whole bunch of this data. And, you know, unfortunately, we, we're sort of in this, this phase where organizations look at personal data as an asset they want to collect as much of it yes. as possible because it's valuable to them yes and they never look at it as a liability but it, it is both yeah that is a very good point and that's uh yes that's something I, that i've that i've talked about several times as well and it's it, and it's part of a lot of the gdpr and some of the laws that are being thrown around here in the u.s is the minimization and, and apple tim cook of apple called this out recently as well and the minimization of data collection and and it's getting away from that notion of collecting as much as possible because it might be useful someday uh, and and seeing it uh, as a liability and just kind of as a, as a responsibility for these companies toward their their, you know, their customers to not collect anything that you know need to know <laughs> only tell me what i need to know and no more uh but we you know obviously we've got a ways to go before we get to that point well, I mean, Apple's a really interesting example here where for, for several years now, they've sort of been carving out their reputation as a, as a privacy-centric mm-hmm. company. Uh, and they've been in the news the last few days because they're going to start really cracking down on applications that right, yeah. are doing extensive tracking of, of the way you interact with applications, which I think is, is a positive thing. Of, of course, the, the, the counter-argument here from many organizations is that, that those usage patterns and the user profiling and the personal data they do treat as an asset. It has value. They sell that. They monetize it. Right. So it's it's going to sort of be interesting to see how things unfold over time. And I, 
you know, there's, it's, there are very powerful organizations on the one hand that want to have all that data, and then there's, there's very sort of privacy-centric initiatives on the other side. Well, and, and I think it's important, and I'm glad you brought it up. It's so important to realize that this is a two-sided coin, this double-edged sword. There are, if, if let, let's say, in an ideal utopian society where this data could be protected uh, and isn't, you know, bandied about and sold without your knowledge, and et cetera, et cetera, there are some really amazing things that we could do by collecting all this data. I mean, it, it's just having all this data would allow us to do some really positive things for society, for individuals. Uh, you know, sometimes I give the example of Her, the movie Her. I don't know if you've seen that with Joaquin Phoenix, but, you know, he's got this little earpiece, but he's got this AI that he kind of falls in love with eventually. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but he's trusted this AI with everything. I mean, this this thing knows everything about it, but I mean, if in the in the ideal scenario where that person is on his side, this AI, you know, they're not giving it away. That person can now help him with all sorts of things because he knows she knows everything about him. But of course, the flip side of that is if you collect that and you can't keep hold of it, then, you know, you've got problems. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is, I, I sort of can't see us going in any direction other than having more data than ever before. Uh, and, and, you know, if, even if you just think about everything sort of personal fitness trackers through to the fact mm. that your TV is connected and everyone's got a home assistant, like we're going to have more data than ever before. And there are some good reasons for it, too. I mean, I certainly love my connected techie things. I think they're fantastic. Uh, but we, we've really got to sort of be thinking about the longer term ramifications. Yeah. On the other hand, as well, the, the generational, I guess, tolerance for personal data and sharing mm. is changing, too. And, yeah, you know, I, I got onto the internet in sort of the, the mid-90s just as I reached adulthood. And mm-hmm. I have enough recollection of a time where we, were, we weren't sharing everything. But there are, you know, I think about my kids, like they're going to have a really right. different tolerance to the amount of information they share because they've just never known a different time. So maybe what's going to happen over time is that, the, you know, the, the older guard will sort of, let's face it, die. <laughs> and then the yeah. newer ones will come in and they've just got a really different sensitivity. And, and it's just going to change the landscape of how we treat data privacy. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder about that too. I've got two daughters and I, you know, I try to tell them, you know, anything you put out there is going to be the forever. So be careful. <laughs> um, all right. So let's, let's wrap things up a little with some practical matters. So let's, let's talk about how to use your site. So uh, let's say, you know, I'm worried that there was, there's been another data breach and whether or not I've been, in, you know, contacted by that, you know, that company saying I'm affected. I'm still worried that I might be, or maybe I'm just generally worried. And I want to go, I've learned about your site. Have I been pwned.com? And I, I go there. What now, now what, how do I use your site effectively? So there's really sort of two parts to it. So one is that the front page of Have I Been Pwned has uh, an email address field. You put in an email address, comes back, it tells you where it's been exposed. Uh, maybe it's nowhere. Maybe it's like my old address and it's been in like 15 different places. Mm. There's also a feature there where you can say, look, let me know if it appears somewhere else in the future in, in a subsequent data breach. And that just sends you a verification email. You click the link, it's good to go. Uh, and of course, it's all free as well. It's a community-centric thing. So there's that piece. There's also a password piece. And I, I kind of lamented this a little bit because it, it ultimately boils down to checking if a password has been exposed somewhere. Mm. But one of the one of the interesting initiatives that's sort of happening in the industry is, is we're moving more towards recognizing that, that data breaches are a thing. They expose passwords. Let us try and maybe not use those passwords <laughs> anymore once they've been exposed, like regardless of how good they were. Maybe it's like all of your dogs and children's names together. <laughs> you know, like if it's been exposed, that's probably not something you want to use. So there's a password search feature, and it, it has an anonymity model behind it, so your password never actually gets sent to the service. But it allows you to see if it's been exposed somewhere. 
Uh, and, and the kind of cool thing about that is a lot of organizations are now building this into their registration flow and into their login flow. Uh, where they take the passwords people right. are providing uh, to the site, they anonymize it, they send it to Have I Been Pwned. And there's about seven or eight million requests a day from various organizations oh, wow. today just to check whether it's appeared somewhere before. Uh, and then what these services are doing is, is they're hitting that, that service and, they, and they're coming back and they're saying, hey, anything from, just so you know, this password has appeared in a breach before, maybe you don't want to use it through to in some cases just saying no like this password's been seen 50,000 times before (laughs) you should not be using this well and and I you know I I published this list you know in various locations of my book and other places the now famous for at least people in our industry the the famous you know 100 worst passwords every year and of course what those passwords are it's not it's the passwords that have been leaked otherwise we wouldn't know of them but but you know password is still like the number one p-a-s-s-w-r-d is like still the number one password or the number two every year, along with one, two, three, four, five, six. I would think that at least, at the very least, that list would be a ba- place to start to tell people. You know, the automated services. When I'm trying to set a password, they're like, eh, "No, you can't use that one because everybody uses that one." Do you see that starting to happen as well? Uh, are they starting to use that? Oh, a- absolutely. Yeah, and, and this is what they're using. They have been pwned data for. There's 550 million passwords in this in this repository from previous locations. And one of the things that, that, that I'm really trying to drive in, in the industry, and, and I guess just to sort of take a step back for a moment, I think the solution to a lot of these issues is that there's a shared responsibility between both uh, individuals mm, yes. and organizations to yes. do security better. So individuals have the freedom to, to choose uh, pretty much whatever password they want and whether they reuse it and whether they turn on two-factor. Organizations are in a position of responsibility where they can help sort of lead people down the path of success. And one of the things I'm really trying to get organizations away from is this traditional mathematical view of password strength. And what I mean by that is the mathematical view is if you have more character types and if you have more length, then the password is better because the entropy increases. So what ends up happening is someone says, well, okay, I want to meet the minimum password criteria. So I'm going to use the word password as a password, but I'm going to capitalize the P. I'm going to put an at symbol instead of the A, and I'm going to change the the O to a zero, and it's eight characters long. So now I have uppercase, lowercase, non-alphanumeric, eight characters, job done. (laughs) And and you look at it and you go, but this is a terrible password. Well, yes, it's a terrible password, but only because our human brains can recognize the pattern within it. So th- this is where we sort of got to get away from the mathematical side. And there are still loads of websites out there where you could go and generate a pass phrase. So this is like four totally random dictionary mm-hmm. words in a totally random order. You know, you think about the number of different possibilities there are with that. But you can't use that password because you didn't have an uppercase character. <laughs> you know? right, or right, in yeah. some cases, you can't use that password because it has a space. So it's really trying to get away from this very archaic way of thinking and and take a much more sort of pragmatic evidence-based way to uh, how we help people create good passwords. So that actually leads me to a question. I'm glad you said that because it tripped this and I've always wanted to know this question. I'm wondering if you know the answer. When you enter passwords, if it's done correctly, the passwords aren't stored as passwords. They're hashed and stored, which, you know, it's this mathematical kind of munging that we were kind of alluding to earlier, where it's not, they don't, if they're doing it correctly, they're not storing the actual password. And yet some of these sites still say you can only, you can't use that character. <laughs> what do they care? If it's hashed, <laughs> what, I mean, why does that even matter? Well, it's a very good question. And there's probably sort of, two traditional problems with the way password restrictions uh, were put in place. So, so one of the traditional problems was if the password was going to be redisplayed to an operator, 
there'd be restrictions. Uh, now, a good example here is that you'll see websites say, well, you can't use angle brackets. So, well, hang on a second. So angle brackets are what we use for HTML, which is what's mm -hmm. behind every web page. So are you going to be putting that on a web page? And that's, that's your, your uh, I guess, criteria for blocking it. Uh, and then by the same token, there are many websites out there that say, we have a list of naughty words. You cannot mm -hmm. use a naughty word. And you're looking at a guy, well, like what, is the website going to get offended? No, there's an <laughs> operator somewhere that's going to read that later on and they don't want to see an offensive word. So, you know, we, we've got that side of things uh, where passwords are, are obviously being redisplayed yeah. and that's why the restrictions are there. And then we've got things like there are characters such as, uh, say, apostrophes. You know, we don't want you to use apostrophes or sometimes we don't even want you to use the word select, which is used mm. in database queries because people are worried about attacks against the database. Now, you're totally right, where in both these cases, if that is the rationale and that's the basis for blocking those characters, well, then the passwords are not being cryptographically hashed right. or stored correctly. Now, I suspect in some cases they actually are, but then there's legacy things that have mm. carried that forward. But, you know, the, 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 we sort of have this, like, thin veneer <laughs> of the security posture of an organisation, which is what we view in the browser. Mm -hmm. And when this is what you see, then people do draw conclusions that, that don't look real good for the organization. Yeah. Okay, so how how comprehensive and up-to-date is the information you have? And I'll bring up a specific example. You alluded to the, or you mentioned the 733 million uh, passwords that, that came through recently. That's part of what the, they were calling Collection 1. And uh, then there were mm. Collections 2 through 5 that were dumped shortly mm -hmm. after that, which is, I think, almost three times as big. Uh, and I noticed, I just checked your website uh, earlier today before we got on, and it doesn't list that yet. Um, are you basically at this point at the mercy of someone delivering that to you, and that's why it's not there, or does it just take a long time for it to process? And in general speaking, how up-to-date how, how up is your database with the, the breaches? I have the data, and it's not about three times the size. It's about ten times the size. <laughs> it's, wow. Uh, it's, uh, it's ginormous. Altogether, the data is around about uh, a terabyte, and Collection 1 was, I think, about 83 gigabytes. So to be honest, I'm, I'm sort of lamenting the rationale of just continually loading mass <laughs> volumes of collated lists. And, and there's a few reasons for this. So I loaded this Collection 1 data uh, three weeks ago. In fact, I loaded it on a Thursday three weeks ago in the morning my time. And now the morning my time is when everyone else around the world is going to bed. So I had a peaceful day. And then I got on a plane to fly to Europe that afternoon and it's just like the gates of hell opened <laughs> on my email account. And I, uh, I, I spent the flight from, from Brisbane to Dubai and then Dubai through to Oslo just, just battling emails. Oh and I, I literally got thousands of emails and hundreds of blog comments, thousands of tweets. <laughs> it just got absolutely inundated. And there are a whole range of different responses to this. And it, unfortunately, it was made even worse by the media picking mm. it up and just fundamentally misrepresenting things. Now, mind you, I wrote like a three and a half thousand word blog post. I was not going to leave any stone unturned. Like every detail was in there. But still, yeah. <laughs> things got very misrepresented. And then, of course, people popped up and said, hey, did you know there's these other collections? So I've grabbed those and I've been analyzing them. And I do have a draft blog post about what I intend to do with them. But the, I guess the bit that I'm lamenting here is that where does it end? Because yeah. there's the other collections but there's also another list someone sent me that had another 13 billion records in them. Oh, my goodness. Now do, and, and, you know, what happens tomorrow if someone takes those two lists and they combine them together and there's a, there's a 20 billion? Like, where mm. does it end? It, it's one thing to say this 
discrete, clearly identifiable organization had a data breach, and this is their data, and we can verify it. It's another thing to say, look, there's just a great big collated list floating around. Uh, so you mentioned that you could subscribe to your service and you could, if you go and search for your email address and don't find it, you might breathe a sigh of relief, but if you'd like to be notified, you can do that. So, uh, would you recommend that if people are concerned about this, that like, I must have 12 email addresses personally, uh, maybe Mm. most people don't have that many, but if if you, would you just go and register every email address you, uh, you're worried about and, and would that be a good preventative thing? Would you recommend people do that? Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, maybe preventative is not the right word because it doesn't stop it from happening. Sure, but yeah. it's it's not it's knowledge, right? And it's awareness. And I think for the most part, people want to know what's being done with their data. And, and that was sort of a large part of the reason why I loaded the Collection 1 data. It's like, well, you know, did you know that your data is being circulated as part of a list and they're trying to break into your account using a previously used password? So I think that that's, that's good, useful information for people. Uh, now, of course, if, if they do then learn about an incident, they've got to decide what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, if look, if they're using strong, unique passwords, in, in 90% plus of cases, that solves the problem. If you're on Ashley Madison, it doesn't solve that problem. You know, like that's a yeah. different problem. But yeah, that, look, that's, that's a good start and it's awareness, right? So you also have this option for opting out. Uh, explain what that is and why someone mm. might want to do that. Yeah, so the premise of opting out is that you may not want to be publicly searchable. Uh, And there's a whole debate here about, look, should it be opt out by default or not? And there are some really fundamental technical reasons why I can't do that. And I have written about it. There's actually a blog post called The Ethics of Running a Data Breach uh, Service, (laughs) which explains why. What the opt out does is it lets you say, look, I, I want to remove myself from public visibility so that other people can no longer find me. I do still store the email address because I want to make sure that if there's a subsequent data breach, then you're not inadvertently opted back in. Mm-hmm. But it does remove you from that public visibility, but it still allows you, if you control the email address, to come back and see where you've been exposed. So devil's advocate, if I'm a hacker, can I use your site for my benefit in any way? Well, you would be able to use it to see where people have been exposed. Uh, so for example, you could put my email address in and see that I've got a LinkedIn account and a Dropbox account and these sorts of things. And, you know, that's that's always going to be a risk, right? Because that is a disclosure. Um, if we put it in context, there are sort of other reasons why that's maybe not as bad as it sounds on the surface. And one of the reasons is if you're a hacker genuinely interested in doing this stuff, a lot of these data breaches are really easily accessible anyway. Mm. Uh, so you could go and pull down, for example, we just mentioned these collections. They're literally being shared on Twitter. Uh, go and do a Twitter search, you'll find it very, very quickly, and you'll pull down billions and billions of records anyway. There's also enumeration vectors in pretty much all these services. Uh, if you really want to know whether someone has an account on Ashley Madison, you you can't find out on Have I Been Pwned, but you can find out on Ashley Madison mm-hmm. because a lot of these services disclose the presence of an account through, uh, if not password reset, then registration or other vectors such as timing attacks against the login facility. So a lot of the time this information is discoverable anyway. And now that's not to say that I'm not conscious of the fact that this is sort of one consolidated vector by which this can be discovered. But on balance, and a lot of this is detailed in that blog post as well, the ability to make this information discoverable publicly is also really valuable. And I mean, just one example of many here is that there are a lot of online organizations that use this as part of the support process where someone says, look, uh, let's say they have a Spotify account. Hey, Spotify, someone's just taken over my account. Uh, You guys have been hacked. 
Uh, and Spotify can sort of look at that email address and go, well, hey, just, just so you know, like you've actually been in these other data breaches. Is there any chance that you've reused your password? Mm. You know, so mm-hmm. it kind of helps people join the dots as well. Oh, sure. Uh, and so you've, you earlier ticked off the, you know, if we were going to recommend to people what they do to protect themselves proactively for things that we, you mentioned using a password manager, uh, so that you can have unique, long, strong, crazy, random passwords that you don't have to remember for each site, uh, and two-factor authentication, which means there's got, you know, the second step and defense in depth that, um, keeps people out of those things. Uh, mm. first of all, is there anything else? And second of all, are there any particular password managers you can recommend? So yeah, maybe to start with the last question first, I use a password manager called 1Password, which is made by a company called Agile Bits, and I've used them for I think about eight years now. Uh, and, and I chose them because they worked across all my devices. I have mm-hmm. iPhone, iPad, and PCs, and everything sort of syncs nicely. I use the family sharing facility there so that I can exchange things with my wife and, and now my kids as they start getting a little bit older. Uh, so I'm very, very happy with that product. And then in addition to that, I, I obviously turn on two-factor authentication, as, as discussed earlier on. Uh, I have a, a Google account as well, and they've got this advanced protection program that uses uh, universal two-factor keys, which is a really, really slick implementation. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to lock down your Gmail, absolutely beautiful setup. Uh, it can't be fished like other mechanisms of 2FA, things like uh, authenticator tokens, which are great in terms of cost-effectiveness, can still be fished. Uh, U2F keys can't, so that they're a really positive thing. And, you know, like I said earlier on, just being conscious of what I share. Like, I'm just not going to share information that I don't positively have to anymore. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've often told people, like one of the classes I teach, that uh, there's no reason you can't lie. <laughs> in, a lot of, you know, in a lot of cases where they're asking for the information, I mean, you know, for, the, for your date, what they usually want to know is if you're a minor or not. Uh, in a lot of cases. So just give them a, you know, give them a birth date that makes you not a minor. Uh, if they're asking other things like, you know, even on the, uh, the questions, like the security questions, which hopefully we'll get away from, but there's still a lot of sites that, you know, at, you know, have you answer three questions. You don't have to give them the truth. Yeah. You know, you could give them a lie as long as you remember what that lie is. And you put that like say in your password manager so that when they ask them again, you can know what your lie was. Uh, that's always that's something to talk about too. Um, so you actually have, uh, and I'm sure that's no coincidence since you like 1Password, you've actually integrated with 1Password and they're actually using your service. Uh, are there anybody, is there anybody else using your, uh, your service? Or are you looking for any other integrations? I know Google Chrome is starting to do this too, but I don't think it's in uh, with you. I think it's just their own thing. So Google Chrome has, has just done their password checker. This launched a, a couple of days before recording. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've had some chats with them and they gave me a heads up on it. And I, I think that they're, what they're doing is really good insofar as th- this is more awareness for people. And Google mm-hmm. obviously has rather a, a sizable audience. <laughs> so yeah. if they can yeah. do this and sort of bring this this knowledge to the forefront, that's awesome. Uh, Mozilla has integrated Have I Been Pwned with their Firefox monitor service. So you can go to monitor.firefox.com uh, and all of that sits on top of Have I Been Pwned. So, you know, again, it's it, it's Firefox. Like they've got massive audience, mm-hmm. uh, a massive audience. And, and that's, that's great because it can bring the data to the masses more. And then because there's an API ecosystem, there's, I don't even know how many <laughs> different yeah. organizations out there that have integrated it into, you know, everything from identity theft protection products through to password managers. And, you know, that's great. Like, I want to see the data used as broadly as possible to make positive changes. 
Well, it's so great that what you're doing, and it's been such a huge help for everybody. And I hope that the audience goes and checks this out and spreads the word because it's one of those tools that could really be helpful, you know, maybe to give you peace of mind to know that maybe you weren't part of a breach or to give you the heads up that, you know, maybe you should do something, especially if you're the kind of person like most of us are that reuse passwords. Maybe this will finally, you know, push you to go out there and get a password manager and start using unique passwords. So thank you so much for doing what you do. And thank you again for coming on the show. This has been really, really uh, entertaining and very enlightening. Thanks, Troy. My pleasure. That was a really fun interview. I really enjoyed talking to Troy. And I definitely, again, I recommend you go check out the website. You can find the link on the show notes. Uh, or you can just go to haveibeenpwned.com. That's just like it sounds, all one word. It's all those English words run together. And pwned is spelled P-W-N-E-D. Haveibeenpwned.com. And, of course, one of the things we mentioned there is, you know, it's really important that we use something like a password manager. Because as human beings, we are really just not up to the task of creating dozens, if not hundreds, of unique, strong passwords. And when the bad guys, you know, find these password databases, either because someone's posted them on the dark web and they just download them, or because they're the people that actually extracted them from some company's servers, if they manage to reverse engineer your password, and it's not always straightforward if, they did, if they've done it right, but, it, you know, if you picked a really poor password, it's actually pretty, pretty simple for them to reverse engineer that. And then the next thing these guys do is they're going to try that same password and email combination on as many other websites as they can. And it's, it's all automated. They call it credential stuffing. And they've got computer programs that just do it. So if your password is in there, if, if your password has been hacked and it in, is in the list, then, you know, and you, and you use that password anywhere else, it's quite possible those other accounts are now in danger as well. So if you're not currently using a password manager, definitely check that out. I've often recommended LastPass. 1Password is also a very good one. There's a free and open source password manager that's quite usable called Bitwarden, B-I-T-W-A-R-D-E-N. And Dashlane, D-A-S-H-L-A-N-E, is often uh, recommended as a good one as well. And of course, all this password stuff, including password manager stuff and how to set it all up, is all included in my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, which you can find on Amazon or A-Press or just about anywhere. Some of these topics I cover in my newsletter and blog, you can check that out at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. And, you know, now that we're all working from home, uh, those of us who can, I guess, some of these security matters are, you know, are not, are not just about our information now. Now it's about company proprietary information as well. So, you know, security measures today, perhaps even more important than they were, certainly when it comes down to, you know, your personal responsibility, because, you know, maybe if you worked at the company, there's an IT person or an IT group that takes care of that kind of for you at the office. But when you're at home, you know, now maybe it's up to you to do some of these things. All right, that's going to do it. I hope everybody's staying home and staying healthy. We'll get through this, folks. I'm not sure when, but we definitely will get through this. There, there will be a light at the end of this tunnel at some point. Take care, and I'll be back here again next week with uh, hopefully a brand spanking new interview. And until then, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Drawbridge down.